turn to Exodus 16 this morning. Exodus 16. We're going to read a slightly shorter section than what I have in the bulletin. We're just going to go verses 1 through 21 today. I, I shared in the first service, there's a few times in my pastoral ministry that I've had to kind of call an audible, which is a quarterback term, I had to call an audible at the line of scrimmage. I, I looked at my wife and I said, I really genuinely think I need about five more days on this sermon. And she wisely said, well, that's not good because tomorrow's Sunday. She's right. And it is. Uh, so I basically cut off the last main point and I reshuffled a few things. That's what we'll have today. Uh, basically what I've done is just say, I'm going to slow down. That's what I'm going to do. Just too much beauty here. Uh, last week, you'll remember, we studied chapter 15, which is the, the people of God came to this place called Mara. And there at Mara, they were given by God in his kindness a kind of education. Having been saved through the waters of the Red Sea, they are bound for the promised land. But there's this section of life which they must walk through, and it's really a wilderness. And so the Lord trains them and teaches them which is so much like our own journey. Uh, we now live this side of the cross in our own salvation. We are journey, journeying toward the, the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. But in between that cross and the promised land, we too are walking as pilgrims through a barren land. They had to stop briefly at a place called Elim, which is a bit of a foretaste, and God gives us foretastes of the new heavens and the new earth. Worship is one of those places. And so as we walk ahead through the wilderness, we want to pause here at Exodus 16. I've asked Will to read this portion for us. I want you to notice God's provision that he gives to his people in the wilderness. Exodus 16, 1 through 21. Starting in verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. The Moses, and A Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, 
I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew laid around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Here's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize that in this account there is much more than simply bread that falls to your people from heaven. And so we pray that you would give to us the spiritual eyes and the ears to hear the beauty that you have laid before us. We ask that you would point us to the Lord Jesus, who is here depicted, and we pray, God, that you'd be willing again to use a man of unclean lips, dwells among a people of unclean lips, a crooked stick, in fact, to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you remember John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. It's a, an impressive miracle. And the reader marvels that Jesus can do such a thing with five loaves and two fishes. That's followed by Jesus walking on water. It's a miraculous event. Then the next morning, the congregation, the whole people who are looking for Jesus, recognize that he's not on the side of the water that they thought he was. He's actually on the other side of the sea. It's another impressive miracle. And all of this is meant by God to set up a, a teachable moment for the crowds and the disciples, like the one that we just read. It's a test from God to see if his people will, will move towards from being simply impressed to being moved in faith so that they would be excited to follow the Lord and trust him. What follows in John chapter 6 is one of Jesus' most famous sermons. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for eternal life is my flesh. Immediately John tells us that the disciples began to grumble. And later many of the larger parts of the crowd turned back. And, and the Bible says they no longer walked with Jesus. And so Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, do you want to leave too? It's a decision point. That is, will you leave or will you, or will you follow in faith? Lord, to whom should we go? 
To whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe. We know that you're the Holy One sent from God. But you recognize, don't you, that being impressed with with miracles is, is one thing. But drawing near in faith to the Father is quite another. It's really the heart of Exodus 16. It's a grand miracle. God begins a six-day offer of bread that is going to last for the next 40 years. Enough bread to feed two million people every single day, six days straight. On Friday, they can gather enough to carry them through the Sabbath day. And you marvel, don't you? Two million people for 40 years. And the only time the food ever spoils is when they become greedy or fail to trust the Lord. It's a miracle. But the passage demands something more than simply marveling. It's an invitation, isn't it, to to draw near to the Father, to know His consistent care, to trust Him and go, oh, wow, what kind of God does this kind of thing? It's the kind who would summon you to, to come and trust Him. So the text teaches us that the Lord cares for your needs as you follow him on this wilderness journey. We have two points this morning. They're not correct in the bulletin. Only one of them is. The first is lessons about grumbling. The second is lessons from manna. Here's what happened. I got so far into the text, I thought, well, most of what I'm saying is actually about grumbling. Maybe I should make this a point. Here's a framework. I'd like you, like you to consider this not only for this chapter, but also perhaps for the rest of the book. Your grumblings and your complaints prove that you don't know or understand the heart of your Father in heaven. That's the nature of the problem in Exodus 16. I, I suppose it's the nature of a problem that I suffer from and you do as well. We frame God either in our own image or in the image of our fears or in the image of our guesses or in the image of the worst scenarios that we encountered with our parents. How many of us can truly say, I really do understand the heart of my father? When circumstances and events and and, and people land in my life in ways that I don't like, I'm always able to look beyond those events to my Father in heaven and see the smile of his providence and believe that he is good because I just know his heart. Parents, isn't that what you want for your children? No, no, no. Don't go run in the street. And the child says, oh, because I understand my dad's heart. He didn't want me to get hit. It's not the way the child responds. It's often not the way that you and I respond. All of those internal grumblings that happen within our own heart, evidence we don't really understand. We don't know the heart of our Father. Because if we knew Him, if we understood Him, we would learn to trust Him. We'd know that His motivations and His desires for us are good. And you would rather be more overwhelmed by His kindness than bothered. God makes himself known to the very people that he saved, which is why it's deeply relevant for you and me. Because when I complain, when I grumble about my circumstances, when I complain about other people or I complain about events or I refuse to bend my knee to his word, at some deep level, it's really just proof 
that I don't know the heart of my father. Because if I knew him, I'd trust him. I wonder if you'd consider your own life today. Perhaps the very circumstances that the Lord has ordained and brought you to in this very moment. Are they not provided to you by a father in heaven? And from the knowledge of what you have of that father in heaven, can you not also find an aspect of his character that is rich and beautiful? Isn't this the reason that the previous chapter these people were thirsty? Isn't it the reason that in this chapter they find themselves hungry? Because God ordains the precise circumstances to teach them about who he is, to move them to trust him. Would it help you to know in your own life, that that's exactly what he's doing at this moment? Has God brought you to very specific circumstances? Maybe he's kind behind them. It only was one month. One month from leaving Egypt, they moved from that little oasis at Elim into the wilderness of sin. I read this passage in college And I remember sitting in my room going, boy, this sounds like a terrible idea. I mean, you're going to move to a wilderness that's called sin? Oh, well, the ironies are English and Hebrew. That's all they are. It is an area or a region that's near Mount Sinai, S-I-N. It's in that desert. It's in that place that the entire congregation begins to grumble against Moses and Aaron And the heart of the grumbling is really an accusation against the care of God. Isn't that really what grumbling is? Look at verse 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So here's the first lesson about grumbling. When you are dissatisfied with your present life, You often remember your past life in a much more glorious way than it really was. You've read their story, haven't you? Bricks without straw, whips on their back, babies being tossed into the river. I mean, these people were slaves. It's not as if every night they were sitting around a big fire pot of meat, smoking cigars, Drinking Cabernet Sauvignon, enjoying a big fat steak, rich conversations, laughter, songs, dancing. No. You read the story, they were slaves. And now they're free. They're free to learn to trust Yahweh. And the truth is they do not like the way he is running the universe. And here's the danger. It is very difficult to trust the Lord in faith today. When you look backward with blinders on and you believe and think that things once were good and now they are getting worse. I suspect if you examine the political spectrum, Those on the left look back to the great society of the 60s, high watermark of equality for all human beings, Lyndon Johnson, 
Those on the right, they look back on the Reagan Revolution, the high watermark of capitalism. And when we look back, we imagine, well, the rest of life is just getting worse. Where is God? Where is God in that political examination? More than that, I look back on my own raising of children. And I think as I hold James Rowe, I think, oh, mine used to be this little. They were so cute and fun. I look back on pictures and I go, oh, that was so great. And I completely forget I was exhausted all the time. I barely slept for a while. But I look back on those days and I remember them more fondly than they were. Maybe some of you look back on relationships and you go, oh, you know, my marriage, it used to be so sweet and everything was good and it was rainbows and sunshine and unicorns. And now you've lost that loving feeling. Whoa, that loving feeling. That was a song. I don't like that song. The Righteous Brothers. Now my children can take care of themselves. Now my marriage has real life events. Wonder if it's more accurate, perhaps more helpful for my own faith today to look back and remember that I walked in a world of real life where I really did have actual needs from the Father in heaven and he was faithful to provide them in those days. Perhaps I I have those today and they're kind of like they used to be that I am still desperate and in need of the Father in heaven to be present and near and comforting even today. It's really hard to believe that the Lord is good if you reshape the past as the one time it was ever good. How much of your grumbling comes from reshaping the past into something it never was? Second, lesson from grumbling your complaints no matter how you phrase them are always really against God now the accusation if you read the text it looks like it's pointed directly at Moses and Aaron but it's not Uh, God's people have put the Lord on trial over the issue of care here's what they're saying if God meant to kill us all along it would have been better for him to kill us back in Egypt than to kill us of hunger right here in the wilderness the translation of course is clearly this is a God who wants to kill us. Clearly this is a God who wants to make us miserable. Look at verse 7. Your grumbling is against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8, your grumbling is not against us. It's against the Lord. Let's be clear. Uh, Grumbling and grief are not the same thing. Grief acknowledges pain in a fallen world. But the Christian is to use grief to draw near to the Lord who wipes away every tear from their eyes, who works all things together for the good of his people. And in this journey through the desert of this life, you really do find grief. But those places of grief are meant for you to call out to God in faith. More than that, grumbling and groaning are not the same thing. Groaning acknowledges pain. It even involves suffering. 
This is where God found his people in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So groaning directed Godward is really an act of faith. But grumbling is different from both grief and groaning. Grief and groaning have the capacity to lead you to the place of prayer and faith. And grumbling almost always leads you away from God. Or it's proof that you already have wandered from God. Because grumbling is an accusation against God by people who don't know the heart or don't remember the heart of their Father in heaven. God, you don't rule this universe, and you're certainly not ruling my life the way I would like it to be governed. What did you complain about this week? What did you grumble about? Events? People? Did you remember in the midst of those grumblings that it is the Lord who ordains those events? It is the Lord who causes those people to cross your path? Grumbling is always and ultimately... An accusation against God's goodness and his care. Third lesson about grumbling. God hears you, even your grumbling. And in this, he is really remarkably abundant and gracious as a father in spite of what he hears. Look at verse 9. He has heard your grumblings. Verse 12, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel. I wonder if you can look back and think about the words that you spoke this past week. What words did you say that, that, that somehow missed the ear of God? God heard every word you spoke. He hears the way you speak to your spouse, to your children. He hears the way that you address those who work for you or with you. And your words have weight. Your words matter. And so before answering the complaint that the people have, God first says, let me show you my glory for just a moment. Because God's glory is his presence. And when they taste and see, what they come away with is this is a God. Yahweh is majestic in his presence. This is a God who's worthy of glory and reverence. And it is fair to say that when they see the glory and the eminence and the presence of God, that they would suddenly and deeply be humbled. My words. Those are not an attitude fitting for an almighty king of glory. What do the words that you say communicate about the God that you serve? Yikes. And here's where God is remarkably gracious and kind. The Lord cares for your needs as you follow him in this wilderness journey. Those are the lessons about grumbling. I'm sure there's 10 more that could be found. Here's the lessons from manna. God uses the manna not only as a provision for his people from day to day, but he teaches them about his character because the heart of the issue here is trust. Will you learn to believe that God is good? First lesson of manna. God really does give you what you need in spite of who you are. Verse 12, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, it says in verse 13, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay over the camp. And when the dew had gone up, 
there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, finest frost on the ground. When the people saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. As the people went out and they saw it on the ground, they said, man, huh? Man, huh? Man, huh? What is it? What is it? What is it? So they began to call it manna. Like whatchamacallit? Like that little candy bar. What is that thing? It's whatchamacallit. Moses says it is God's answer to your need. Bread from heaven. Manna didn't look like anything they'd ever seen before, but this was a clear provision to an actual need. And it makes me wonder if sometimes we miss God's provision of our needs because we are expecting him to answer our wants. So we're expecting it to look like something else. And so while staring at the wants that our hearts crave, you ignore the abundance and the generosity of his provision of the things that you need. I suspect some of you have been asking God for something for a long, long time. Perhaps at some deep level, you you hope he's going to answer those wants, and sometimes he does. But more often than not, he answers your need, and then he moves your heart over time so that you begin to see that his timing and his provision for the thing you more deeply needed was already given. How kind of the Lord. I don't know what you've been praying about. I don't pretend to know how God might answer you. But maybe it would be worth double-checking. In other words, looking back and saying, God, have you already answered something that I've prayed for? And do not be surprised if the Lord answers your physical want with a more pressing spiritual need. That's what he's doing in John chapter 6. The crowd followed Jesus in John 6. They got hungry. Jesus fed them for their physical need. And then he began to open their eyes that there was a greater provision for their spiritual need that they never knew they had. Listen, like not even in the notes. Pastoral comment. The Lord cares for that spiritual need. And while you're begging and fighting and crying and asking him to provide something physical, what if he loves you enough to cause you to wait and hunger and look again? And all along he says, I'm providing. I'm going to have to be enough. You're going to have to believe that I'm sufficient. Second lesson from manna, your needs coupled with his provision is often a test meant to build faith. Back in verse 4, God said, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. Each family can gather a portion for every day, and it'll be enough for that day. And then he says in verse 4 that I may test them, whether they'll walk in my law or not. And then on the sixth day, when I prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, in an academic environment like we are used to, it has probably caused us to misunderstand this biblical term, test. 
Maybe you can relate to the sentiment of my friend who said, you know, I really love learning. I just, I just hate tests. And if you love learning, but you hate tests, then you should really appreciate what the Lord is doing. He, ad- he is not only in this text, but at this given moment in your life, causing you to be tested in such a way that you learn even as you strive and fail. I, I-, I suspect, unlike some of you, I have failed more tests than I can remember. There are some tests that I failed in school that made me feel hopeless. I remember grabbing a paper and going, 44? I mean, how, do you, how do you recover from a 44 when there's only three tests in the semester? You check the calendar and you go, when is drop and add? I got to get out of this. It's hopeless. But you see, when God tests his children, it is not meant to make you want to give up. It is meant to be used by God as an instrument for your learning to move your heart toward him, which is why James says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, that's the absolute opposite of I want to give up. For them, it was will you believe me? Would you believe me as the father to be the one to provide sufficiently for you today? And will you believe that I'm trustworthy enough to come back tomorrow and I'll give you more for tomorrow? And when they didn't believe him, when they tried to gather up more so they could store it up, it rots in their hands. Third lesson from manna, all of this is a spiritual picture of God's grace. I'm talking about saving grace, but I'm also talking about sustaining grace, that which God supplies in order to carry you through this life. Spiritually, in Christ, friends, God always gives you the precise measure of grace that you need to atone, to to make atonement for your sins. In other words, you never have more than you need. You never have less than you need. You don't get to make up what is lacking in God's grace by your extra efforts to cover somehow over the sins of your past. That would be impossible. You cannot likewise cover for your sins of today. You cannot, by by doing good things today, earn up enough grace to be prepared for the sins that you will commit tomorrow. No one can ever say, I've stockpiled so much grace that I can sin freely. No one can ever say, I've stockpiled so much grace that I think I've ceased to sin. Then what about sustaining grace? If you are a worrier, if you are prone to fret about tomorrow, have you yet noticed that God does not provide enough grace for you to handle the worst case scenarios of your imaginations? Have you picked that up yet? There was a wise older pastor's wife who who used to counsel a room of seminary wives when we were up in St. Louis. And to those wives of men who would later become pastors, this woman said, God doesn't give you grace for your imagined fears of tomorrow. He supplies enough for your concerns today and your needs of today. Where did she learn that nugget of wisdom? I think from Jesus. Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
And so friends, when you come to tomorrow, you'll notice that some of your fears that you had yesterday never even came to fruition. Could that be the reason that God doesn't allow you to borrow on that grace? Because you don't really know the future. More than that, when you get to tomorrow, you will find things to be concerned about and fearful of that day that you never could have planned up for. You never could have dwelt in anxiety to get ready for it. And what does the Lord do? He meets you in this new day with sufficient grace. But ultimately, manna is not just a picture of of grace in general. It's really a foretaste of Christ. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I wonder today if there are not people who hear my voice who are spiritually hungry is there some deep spot that you cannot find nourishment? No amount of achievement seems to touch it. No relationship can nourish it. No personal goals met seem to satisfy it. Every time I try to medicate it again and again and again, I just find more emptiness. Somebody will say, well, then it's a self-esteem problem. It's not a self-esteem problem. You know this. You can't get enough affirmation to soothe your spiritual emptiness. And if you think and feel and know the hunger that I'm describing, there is, says the scripture, one bread. Jesus is God's son, and he is the only bread that satisfies the soul's hunger. This is the bread, says Jesus, that comes down from heaven so that those of you who will eat it will not die. If you have never come to Christ, the bread is offered. Take hold of Jesus by faith. If you are already a believer, you've been walking with Christ for a long time, but you still feel that spiritual hunger, it's not that you don't have Christ. It's that he won't satisfy your heart when you exchange the, the spiritual need and try to satisfy it with something that is physical. Sometimes mature believers try to soothe spiritual hunger with, with physical food. So you, you shouldn't be surprised if your busy, turmoiled, stressful, earthly pursuits end up leaving you spiritually hungry. They always will. So instead, go back to the Father in faith. Ask him to to feed you and nourish you once again spiritually on Christ. This is a good God, and he will do it because the Lord cares for your needs as you follow him on this wilderness journey. Cry out to him in faith. Lessons about grumbling, lessons from manna. We'll close with that. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would meet us in the places of our spiritual hunger with the bread who is Christ. Having nourished us on Jesus, we pray, Father, that we would not forget the place of that spiritual nourishment, that we'd come back again and again to taste him in your word, to know him through the ministry of your spirit, through the sacraments when we enjoy them. And we give you thanks for feeding us on the Lord Jesus. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing.